Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Tonight, my guests are Jake and Mike, the fire team for freedom. Uh, before we get into that, I'm going to go through my typical announcements. If this is your first time listening to V Radio, please visit my website, V Radio or V Radio.org. Uh, there, in my archives, you can find more shows like this one. Uh, you can also find my Zeitgeist, or uh, not, not just Zeitgeist, but basically must see TV list of free documentaries that you can watch on the internet. Uh, I have a forum there. There's a Facebook group there. It's also where you can find the, the link for the Facebook group for my upcoming documentary on about Internet trolls. Um, and uh, in addition, if you like V-Radio, uh, consider supporting V-Radio by going to the donate page. Um, for every dollar value of your donation, you are entered into a raffle. Uh, the person who wins at the end of the month wins a free item from the V-Radio store. So, um, all of that jazz being said, which I honestly should just record at some point because I have to say it every show, um, let's introduce our guests, uh, Jake and Mike. Welcome to V-Radio. Thanks, Neil. Good to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Now, Glad to be back on radio. Excellent. Glad to have you. Uh, you guys' show was one of my favorite shows during the old Ron Paul radio days, and I, I love staying up for it. You always had a really late, uh, like it was like midnight or something, if I remember, a really late show. <laughs> Um, and, uh, so I guess, uh, what I generally do is I have each one of my guests, regardless of who they are, introduce themselves by, um, telling the story of what made them decide to become activists. What was the precipice moment in their lives that made them decide to go from being part of the world to being someone who's trying to make it better. I'll start with you, Jake. Um, well, uh, for me, uh, Mike actually played a pretty big role in that. Um, I was, uh, I was in college up in South Dakota I had just gotten out of four years of active duty with the with the Marine Corps, and uh, I can say that while I was in the Marines, I, uh, I I definitely saw some things taking place that made me feel like something in the world is uh, is not right. That the politicians are maybe not looking out for the best interests, uh, especially for us service members, and uh, you know just basically everybody is everybody in the country. But uh, I think the the actual pivotal moment for me was uh, I, I was on the phone one day with Mike and uh, he told me to check out Ron Paul and in uh, I, I I looked him up on the internet and that that evening there was a there was a debate and you know prior to that I hadn't been all that involved in politics and whatnot but uh, you know based on his advice I turned it on and I watched it and. Boy, I'll tell you, you know, it was just, it was just everything that Ron Paul said made so much sense to me. It just, it just suddenly, it was like the entire world made sense to me, you know, and just, and and that quickly. And I, and I sat up all night and I watched every Ron Paul video that was out there. And, uh, you know, this is, this is the kind of information you know, once once you really kind of take a step back from the matrix and realize what's going on, it's hard not to participate in speaking up. You know, I mean, it's it's something that you, if you have a conscience and you have any kind of uh, personal trait to do what do what's right, you know, you you have to say something. So that's kind of my memory of me becoming a activist. Kind of ironic, actually. That's very similar to what got me started. Was a friend uh, linking me um, 
Ron Paul courageously tells the truth on uh, YouTube um, uh, when he starts explaining, well, they don't attack us because we're free. They attack us because we've been bombing their country for 10 years, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was just like, did he just yeah. actually say that? You know, it's like, wow. Yeah. You know, I was never really a sheep. I had just kind of thrown my hands up in the air and said, you know what? Screw politics. These people all suck. And then somebody started speaking the truth. And then I did more research, and he wasn't the only one at the time. Uh, Congressman Dennis Kucinich, you know, spoke his mind. Uh, Senator Mike Gravel became a friend of mine, all that. Um, you know, so, but it was still unusual in that election season to have so many controversial candidates really talking about the issues honestly. So that brings me to you, Mike. Yeah, I'll say that mine, I think, I started a little bit differently. I think thinking back to, like, my childhood I think like looking at my dad, you know, he was kind of a, a pillar of the community as far as I could see, you know, being a child and looking up to him. I, I saw, you know, a lot of the community like looking to him to, you know, fix things, to lead people, to show other people the way. And, you know, he was always kind of helping people, uh, you know, solve their problems. And so, you know, I, I kind of took on that idea that, you know, that's the way I wanted to be as well. Uh, you know, reading books, I think one of the first books that I can remember reading was uh, The Battle for Wake Island, you know, and, and kind of living that in my own mind, thinking, you know, what am I going to do when the, you know, when the, the chips are down, you know, I'm going to be the one that's that's going to be, you know, telling people, you know, let's take these SOBs out, you know. And so I kind of, you know, for a long time, I, you know, kind of lived my life with that kind of ideal. Now, you know, I, I probably to a certain extent lived in, in the matrix thinking, you know, that, you know, like most people think, or at least, the you know, the larger population, that, you know, the 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 storyline that we're all told is the one that we're supposed to be doing. So, you know, I was involved, uh, you know, I, I watched Reagan's campaign. I was a big Reagan supporter even when I was like in my teenage years. And, uh, you know, I was looking forward to as a, when I enlisted in the army, uh, you know, serving under Reagan because I thought he was a great leader, you know, since I've learned a little bit more about him, but <laughs> you know, I might have just been a little, you know, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I still think he had a, you know, in some sense, he was trying to do the right thing. I don't think all the people in his administration were definitely doing the right thing, but in any case, you know, fast forward to Ron Paul, 2007, you know the uh, the debate where he gets into it with Giuliani, and that's really where I I wake up to, you know, the reality that I'm in today, which is you know, I notice that there's quite a few things different than than what I believed before. Now it's interesting that you pointed that out because um, ironically, Ron Paul quoted Ronald Reagan quite a bit and worked with him. There were certain aspects of you know even Reagan that I agreed with, like. Um, uh, Ron Paul would quote Ronald Reagan's foreign policy, like, you know, he didn't understand the irrationality of Middle Eastern politics. And then 
You know, that's why he wasn't going to send any more troops into that circumstance, because culturally it just was not a good idea, regardless of, you know, any uh, mod, you know, anything he thought was going to come out of it. Um, but regardless, though, yeah, I mean, you've learned more about him since then. And honestly, it's uh, I can't really think of a president that uh, that ever even gets close to it without, you know, in some way selling out to somebody. I mean. Ironically, uh, Jimmy Carter seems to be, you know, I mean, I don't know him well enough, but I studied him a little better. This guy before Reagan. And at one point, he just kind of blatantly says to the American people, OK, well, here's the deal. Um, we're having energy problems and uh, we're consuming entirely too much and uh, we probably shouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> so being told the truth, you know, made sure that he didn't get elected again. <laughs> yeah. you know, um, but in any case, uh, now, uh, one of the reasons why I called you guys on specifically for this topic is that I've covered this in the past in V Radio, um, and it kind of, when I thought about it, it rang true in, to a lot of the things I remember listening to on you guys' show. And it has to do with the fact that, uh, first of all, you know, we have a lot of protesters in the world, you know, who I understand their animosity because they're anti-war. Um, and so, therefore, as a result of that, they become anti-soldier. You don't see this as much as you used to. During the Vietnam era, you'd have guys getting off the plane and they'd be spitting on them and stuff like that as if, you know, and calling them baby killers or whatever. That's the funny thing about all of that, you know, is that like that's what the first Rambo movie was actually supposed to be about. And most people didn't really pay attention to the message that they were trying to show there, which was just, you know, we we send these people off to do horrific things. We bring them home and then we crap on them. You know, as if it's their fault that they got drafted and sent over there against their will. It's a little yeah. different nowadays, obviously. But um, the other attitude that I noticed is from more of the, the survivalist conspiracy theory types is that, you know, they, they hate the military and they see it as an object of the state. And the funny thing is, is I know several, you know, former servicemen who would agree that what the military has been used for in the past is obviously you know, uh, motivated by corrupt interests, whether you believe it's corporations or corrupt politicians, it doesn't really change that, you know, um, but they also seem to think that as long as they lock themselves up in their compounds with guns, that they will in some fashion be able to successfully um, hold a revolution against the United States military in the event that it was ever called in to uphold a fascist dictatorship. And I mean, I, I've never been a soldier. I've never served, but I've talked to many who have. Um, I watch the show Future Weapons quite a bit, and that's just the stuff they're willing to talk about. Um, it's just not practical to think that we could, without some kind of collaboration from the military, protect ourselves under those circumstances. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, I, I think you know, owning a firearm in the event of a collapse is a good idea, but um, I think that it's – especially if our politics is to be anti-soldier, um, when a – when a corrupt government wants to get their soldiers to do things to the people, they're going to feed those soldiers all kinds of propaganda to convince them. You know, they're going to say, well, these people are evil. So therefore it's okay that you're rounding up and uh, rounding them up in camps and, you know, to, you know, lining them up or shooting them or whatever they have in mind. This is the exact same kind of crap that the Nazis did to get farmers, you know, who became soldiers to, you know, round people up and put them on cattle trucks and send them off. You know, um, and if we go out of our way to alienate those people, then we're basically playing into the hands of anybody who would want to convince a soldier that that was appropriate. You know, if we're spitting on them and yelling at them and screaming at them, or even worse, throwing stuff or being violent during protests, it just makes it easier for any uh, elite entity, you know, to convince the soldiers that we're the bad guys. Now, 
what do you guys think about that? I'll start with Mike. Well, you know, it's it's interesting that, you know, they always play the, uh, you know, different groups against each other. And, you know, regardless of who it is, you know, if it's city people versus country people, you know, you can you can almost get to the point where you can get people to the ideal that, you know, they absolutely hate the other side, whatever they are. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways we see that almost every day played out in different things, you know, TV shows and, you know, uh, I, I was just watching the other day, you know, the uh, the Wall Street protest. There's a policeman that uh, sprayed a couple ladies with mace and, you know, they identified this guy and and I think they even put his name out on Facebook and his address and his phone number. And you know, to a certain extent I thought, oh boy, this is not going to be good because, you know, what's going to happen is is you basically get both sides aggravated. You right. know, you 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 give the police an opportunity to see how idiotic people can be, you know. This person's this police officer no matter what he did now his family's involved you know his his wife and his kids could possibly be threatened because people know where his address you know and 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 that really gets the police you know to a point where you know they are in a emotional mode you know right and on the other side you've got the same thing where the, you know the the people are saying you know these thugs these SOBs, you know, they shouldn't be doing that, you know. And so, you know, you you've got to uh you know, you've got to you know, be a little more understanding of the particular situation and understand how to deal with it best, you know. In my little blog there, you know, I put together uh, a couple things scenes from the movie Gandhi. You know, in, in the movie like one of his first protests He's burning his uh, ID card, and he's he's burning like the whole group's ID cards, and the police come and they say, you know, don't burn the police, don't burn your ID, you know, and so he takes his ID and he sets it on fire, and you know, you can just see the the level of anger in the policeman rising, you know, and then he grabs like a whole drawer full of other people's and he starts throwing them in the fire, and of course the policeman comes over and hits him and knocks him down and you know he falls to the ground and then he grabs another one and he throws it in the fire you know and the guy says don't do it you know and he just keeps doing it and of course he hits him but you know and Gandhi's you know in that whole thing Gandhi never strikes back you know and to a certain extent you know you see that what he's doing is he's you know he's He's willing to take the punishment to get to the point that the other side listens. And I'm not saying that that's, you know, exactly what has to be done, but I'm saying in in a situation, you know, violence doesn't, you know, it doesn't really solve the problem. It just creates a bigger problem. And, uh, you know, I I think even the police understand that in reality. I mean, they they, they go through... Well, I mean, they go through, I mean, it it becomes almost a, uh, 
you know, a standard practice, but to a certain extent, that's why they hate their job because it doesn't really work. You know, they don't get respect. They, they you know, they get, you know, they, they get hatred in return, you know? And so that's why they're unhappy to a certain extent. And, you know, until people take the time to say, you know, we know why you're unhappy. It's because you're not understanding the process. You know, violence doesn't solve the problem. So you're saying the police are not happy? These are the ones that are not happy and feeling like they're not uh, respected? Yeah. That they're getting angry? Well, I mean, it, it, at a deeper level, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, to a certain extent, a lot of these feelings are kind of hidden underneath the rationalizations of what they do. The fact that they get a paycheck for a job and you do the job, you know, I mean, you could basically say the same thing about your job. You don't like your job or you don't, I mean, I'm not saying you don't like your job, you'd like your job, but if you didn't like your job, you could say, you know, well, hey, it pays me a paycheck, you know, yeah. I got to feed my family. And, and so your the, attitude, of course, would only be made worse by the fact that your job is to protect certain people and those people are basically jerks to you. And and I get it, and I understand why some people dislike police, and obviously some police are definitely deserving of being disliked. But I would actually share a story with you that I've I've told on previous shows um, that or that kind of corroborates what you're talking about. Um, I generally don't have problems with police. I'm very good at talking to them. I think part of it is I've worked a lot of 24-hour store you know jobs when I was growing up, and I spoke to a lot of police because they're bored. You know, so they sit yeah. around and drink coffee and they chat you up and. You start to learn about them and why, you know, where they come from. And I started talking to them about why their behavior changes. And I was like, so why is it you guys are always jerks when you pull people over? And he's like, uh, statistically, most of us get shot when we pull people over. Most police die when pulling someone over. Um, and that's why police immediately go on the, you know, the defensive when they move in that situation. I was like, well, that's reasonable. I mean, it makes perfect sense psychologically that that's what would happen. I mean, I hope for a world where they don't ever have to pull anybody over again, but on the same token, you know, that's that's an explanation. It's a root cause. It's an understanding of a certain behavior. And then another story would be the, the time that um, a girlfriend of mine and I were at a park really late at night just walking around and talking. Um, a police officer pulls up and, you know, I got long hair and I always wear metal T-shirts. So they generally make a few assumptions about me. And they're like, so what do you guys do in there? You know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Oh, I'm sorry, officer. We were we were just going for a walk. Um, you know, it's really loud in the house, and we wanted to talk because there were people playing video games. And they were really loud. And he's like, it, it was it was almost as though me being nice to him actually at first put him off because he figured I had to have been being a smartass. So he says to me, "Are you being a smartass?" I'm like, uh, "No, no, not at all. Uh, you know, I'm really sorry. You know, I didn't know the park was closed." And then. And he says, oh, well, you know, there's drug deals here frequently. You know, we've had people drug off into these woods and hurt, you know, stuff like that. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, we just had to deal with a uh, blue screen of death. Nothing I can do about that, unfortunately. Um, but anyway, uh, you guys back? Yeah, yeah. we're here. Excellent. We're Sorry here. about that. Um, yeah, that rarely happens during shows, but, you know, that would be an issue. So That we... might be something on our end, but 
No, no, I, I, I've been having blue screens to death for a while now. So, um, anyway, as I was saying, um, talking to a police officer and, um, you know, I expressed to him essentially, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize this park was so dangerous. Now I feel badly, you know, and I was being sincere with him and it clearly, then he went from, okay. So the guy is, is being a smart ass to wait, this guy really sincerely, you know, is listening to me. And then I said, and I, I really appreciate you letting me know that now I feel terrible. And he just kind of cocked his head to the side and went, you know what? I, I don't think the park is closed for you guys today. Uh, I, I think that you guys can go have some fun and I'm just going to sit here and do some paperwork and um, that's it. Go have, you know, go, go have your walk. You know, he literally appreciated it so much and was so taken aback by the fact that someone said to him, Hey, you know, I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you for trying to protect me. You know, so at the end of the day, I do believe, I mean, he reacted because I did respect what he was doing and I thanked him for what he was doing because at the end of the day, him trying to protect me from drug dealers or the girl that I was with for being raped or whatever by whomever might have been in that park late at night was not personal. You know, and I think that a lot of people, particularly when they get pulled over, they get really nervous, which of course just also tells the police officer why is this person nervous? Does he have a gun? Is he going to shoot me? Are my Is my wife and kids going to get that phone call that I'm not coming home? You know, and I think that the average layman who doesn't know what that feels like has no basis for empathy with somebody in that position. So mm. now that being said, uh, it was kind of Jake's turn to talk, and I kind of moved in there a little bit just because I wanted to tell that story. But go ahead. Yeah, sorry if I, I I didn't mean to cut in the middle of that, but uh, no, it's an open forum. You know, the thing is, um, you know, I got I got a bunch of different ideas going through my head, but um, you know, my my thing is the police officers. I got a couple of friends that are police officers. Obviously, it's kind of a transitional career for somebody coming out of the military. I know a couple of people that have done that. I know that there's a lot, you know, a lot of cops that are. Uh, good people and upstanding and doing the best that they're supposed to and there's sheriffs out there with the right ideas and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we're, we we talk about this and, you know, back when we were doing our show, we were talking about the, you know, the 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 nightmare of the police state and the and the transition, you know, the idea that the military would suddenly get orders to, uh, you know, hold, you know, to, 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 uh, you know, basically round eliminate freedoms, you know, and round people up and put them in camps and all that kind of stuff. Take you know, guns away from you know, the, the, that is what's ha- that is happening. But, you know, it's happening in the form. Of, it's not the military that's doing that. You know, I mean, that's that's the fear. But what's happening is it's the police. The police are the ones doing that. I, I you know, I mean, there are way too many police officers. There are way too many laws. There are way too many prisoners being rounded up in in the you know in the uh, uh, you know the camps that we talk about. That's prison. You know how many how many prisoners are in jail for nonviolent crimes for you know just absolutely absurd criminals that you know that are that we're paying this money to house them in these in these camps 
for things that no, nobody cares, you know? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the cop shouldn't even be coming up to give me a speeding ticket. You know why? Because who cares if I'm speeding? If I don't do anybody any harm, then what's the reason that you're even bothering me? You know, and, and, and you know, we're talking, this has been the case for, you know, 10, you know, 50, 60 years. This has been damn cars on the road. They've been doing this crap, you know. But, you know, we, we've seen an, a, a graduation, um, you know, probably specifically over the past century of, you know, an, an increased police presence and a, a crackdown on just all these absolutely ridiculous uh, interventions on the part of the police, you know. Now, you know, the military, you know, if you look at it, it they were uh, – Ron Paul got the highest percentage – of support from military members, you know. So I, I think you know when you look at the military as a whole, there's a lot of there's a lot of real smart people in there. Um, you know, I know personally that there's a lot of guys in there that you know kind of feel very similar to the way that I do, but uh, you know, just not keep it to themselves. Yeah, just kind of keep it to themselves, and they're just not you know committed to going you know, all the way out there and, and, you know, speaking up to the disaster that we've caused around the world and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, basically, you know what the police are, you know, and I, and I, I apologize if I, if I, if anybody's out there that's listening as a police officer, you know, you, you know I'm, I'm sure that, like I said, I would say that the majority of the police officers that I've met have been, um, you know, respectable people. But, the these situations we got people you know we got we got uh, you know just a painted situation you got a police officer sitting at a nightclub where people are getting drunk and then somebody gets tossed out and uh by the bouncers and if they get arrested for that what if, what, if the bouncers kick them out the door then what the hell is the point of getting you know uh this happened to me personally actually but <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous what we're getting arrested for. You know, um, now to combat this, uh, one, you know, I, th I think that this is something that needs to be addressed on every local government venue. You know, people need to stand up for local politicians, town sheriffs that want to eliminate these ridiculous crimes from taking place, you know. Uh, we don't need increased police presence all over the place. I guarantee you that there are a number of communities that are trading teachers for police officers. It's a huge problem. You know, it, we're seeing a complete lack of education. Education in America is in an absolute dive, and crime is on the rise. You know, and then the only reason crime is on the rise is because we got more police out there arresting people for these ridiculous crimes. Well, in the, in, uh, I understand completely where you're coming from. Uh, I would also point out, though, that the crime rates go up as the as the uh, economy tanks as well. Um, you know, that's statistically proven. And then, rather than solving the economic problems, it's easier just to put more police into the situation. Um, like for example, even paid armed security uh, in, in many cases. Uh, for example, I was up at the FIA office with a friend of mine because he was dealing with some stuff in regards to his food stamps, and. Um, they this is within a couple weeks of them putting up a, a notice that they were going to start limiting the amount of cash assistance certain people got. Um, and in response to this, this place used to have one security guard, okay, in a nice open area, you know, looked like a place you could take your family to. 
And then I walk in there now, and it's got bulletproof glass um, and four security guards in the room. Not one, four security guards in the room at all times. You know, I'm just like, so your response to this, you know, is obviously, don't get me wrong. I, I know there are people who absolutely abuse cash assistance. But in the state of Michigan, um, because of the fact that we're at 43% unemployment, that of course is not being reported correctly, um, you know, people are desperate. There really are. Like when I went to the, when I was unemployed and I went to the unemployment office and then went to the classes they make you go to, I was not surrounded by welfare moms. I was surrounded by, you know, blue collar, you know, men with skills who hated being there. They felt so ashamed. You know, I was surrounded by, educated college educated graduates engineers you know it was everyone and uh, the, the basically the response to the economy tanking is always you know well let's just just put you know some more security more police out there don't get me wrong i'm i'm on board with you about the stupid laws and that's one of the ways that the state makes money for itself because yeah. it can't afford to pay for all of the various socialist answers that it gives to you know to the problems in question i mean the michigan uh, state government nearly shut down completely. I think it was about four years ago. As in, uh, governor at the time, then Governor Granholm was like to, said to the United States government, um, "We're finished. Uh, we we cannot do this anymore. Uh, if you don't give us assistance, I'm going to shut the government down." Because they literally could not afford to continue to have a Michigan state government. The money mm -hmm. was not there. Um, I mean, and you can raise taxes, but when everybody who has any money has already moved out of the out of the state, that's not going to work either. So, because <laughs> it's like squeezing blood out of a stone, you know, it, it's not going to happen. So, and I agree with you, and I understand where you're coming from completely. And I think that, that the point to address about this is to look at whatever social conditioning goes into police that teaches them that this is the appropriate solution. You know, these people all start as people. I mean, I was interested in being a police officer at one time. I wasn't thinking to myself that I wanted to be a cop because I wanted to pull people over for stupid, you know, not, you know victimless crimes. And I certainly wasn't interested in any of that other stuff, but I have a funny feeling that uh, after I spent some time there, I would probably be conditioned by the system to, you know, cause me to suddenly somehow believe that this was all appropriate. That's why mm -hmm. I use the example of the Nazis, because there were so many people that were just normal people that they turned into ruthless killers. You know, that's an extreme example, but, you know, I imagine that every one of the members of the Gestapo at one time was just a kid playing with toys like anyone else. You know, uh, I imagine that every member of the SS, you know, who manned those concentration camps at one time, you know, would have never considered doing something like that. And especially when an economy tanks like it did in Nazi Germany, it's extremely easy to convince people to do this kind of stuff. And that's the other thing you see in all of these places where you see people, you know, like the welfare offices, the unemployment offices, is there's recruiters and there's recruitment posters everywhere. You know, it's almost like they don't need to draft us anymore. They'll just tank the economy so that, you know, more and more of my friends every day join the military for college or to take care of their families because there's just nothing else here. Mm -hmm. And that problem is spreading, you know. Um, and I guess that, uh, however, you know, in the, in the when when the system crashes and we end up in a situation where, you know, you have more circumstances where now I guess we have to have bulletproof glass at every major government facility – we're going to install more security officers when that doesn't work, and inevitably violence and riots starts to break out. It's going to be soldiers who are sent to go deal with it, you know, even though that's supposed to be illegal. Um, and if we treat the soldiers in such a way that continues to assist the soldiers to come to the conclusion, oh, 
all this stuff my CO told me about these people being evil terrorists must be true. Look at what they're doing. You know, it isn't going to be conducive to us getting out of that situation, I guess was the point I was trying to get at. Um, and police are kind of in that same line. I mean, we had a guy actually who, um, one of the viewings, I think it was the Los Angeles viewing for Peter Joseph's last film, Zeitgeist Moving Forward. Um, he got up at the end during the Q&A and he said, I'm a you know Los Angeles police officer and I want you to know that there are actually a lot of people in my line of work who understand what you guys are talking about, about the things the government is doing wrong, and we're actually with you. You know, um, he says, I'm not talking for all of them, but there are a lot of us that are. You know, so think about that when you're when you're dealing with this and, you know, what could possibly happen that, they, you know, some of us do support what you're talking about. They figure it out. They get it. Um, and we have to make sure that more of them get it, I guess would be my point. We have to reach out to them and educate them and help them understand the truth of the situation. And that's one of the reasons why, like, the nonviolent protests of Martin Luther King worked so well was because it was really freaking obvious who was being the abusive jackhole when you got a bunch of peaceful protesters getting the crap beat out of them on a regular basis who never laid a hand on anyone, never threatened anybody, was never mean to anybody. And as long as they kept their noses clean, that's what made those protests effective. I had somebody actually on my show from Occupy Wall Street on the last show to those of you tuning in today who might have missed that, you can check that out in my archives. Um, actually, you'll find it right now on the, the widget um, at v-radio.org. There's a widget with my last five shows on it. Um, and, you know, I told him, I said, well, you know, I, you know, you need to tell those girls that as, as odd as this is, the ones who got maced, you know, that they essentially won a victory. Because the fact that the, that cop did that has now gotten all kinds of attention for their cause. And the fact that the cop did it and nobody did anything to justify it only made their cause even more you – know, look even better and look even stronger at that point. Because then it makes it clear somebody's cracking down in a tyrannical fashion. They want these people to be silenced. That's exactly what you want people to see when they're looking at your protest because it points the fingers at the real guilty people. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the I, I suppose the thing is, though, is that, you know, between the, the point that we are at right now and the point that we, uh, you know, assume that is going to be somewhere in the future is an opportunity for us to, you know, put this on a different track. And that means, you know, actually confronting some of these people and, you know, taking the time to you know, like you was talking about listening to, you know, a, a cop on a midnight shift or whatever, you know, you got to take a little bit of time to understand their perspective. Because I, I can tell you, you know, when I was a soldier and I was facing, you know, I was sitting on the border in, in West Germany at the time, looking over into East Germany and all the Russians looking back at me, you know, all I know is they wanted to kill me. You know, and I and if they came across that line, that was my job was to kill them. You know, and so that was basically all I, I mean, that was the extent that I thought about it. You know, if they come across the line, I'm pulling the trigger. Right. But you know, the the thing is, is that you gotta you got to think. You know, you've got to give them a little bit more information to get them to the point that they start thinking about because I, I remember you know right at the end of my army career that I was I was reading Gorbachev's I think it was Perestroika and uh 
I was, you know, sitting on a tank and, you know, we ain't got nothing else to do. So I, I whip out this book and I'm reading the book and here, our, here our XO comes along and he sees that book and he sees like Gorbachev on the front of it. And he's like, what in the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and his his thing is is you know what do I got a communist infiltrator in my unit? You know, of course, of course, you know we we know each other to a certain extent. You know, and you know it, it spurs a you know, of course we have a relationship that we can, you know, we can kind of cook down that situation into you know. He understands my point of view, and you know, let me let me tell you what I'm doing here. You know, I'm trying to learn more about the enemy. I mean, if you look into the uh, movie George, uh, Patton, you know, there's a part where he's like going to sleep and he puts the book down, and it's a book written by Rommel. You know, right, right. And you know, that's basically the way I, you know, I approached it with him. And, you know, he was okay with that, you know, but the the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, like the, the first impression in a lot of cases, if you don't, you know, take the time to investigate further, you can go, you know, way off, you know, into some crazy ideas. And that's really kind of what's being exacerbated in a lot of cases, you know, on both sides. If you look at, uh, you know, police training you know, just like you said, you know, the police pulls you pulls you over and he says, you know, that's where most police get killed is when they pull people over. Well, that's also what they're being told in their training, you know, and is that statistically the case? I'm not sure. But basically, they're being trained to be apprehensive in that situation. You know, they're being trained to, you know, if someone makes a move with an object in their hand that could be a gun, you know? And so they're saying, hey, you know, if you're in that situation, you got to make a decision and that, you know, make it now, you know, and do and shoot and ask questions later. Well, you know, we've got to be the ones that say, hey, hold on a minute, you know, think about the situation, think about the statistics involved, you know, just like with terrorists, you know, a lot of the police believe that, you know, terrorists are right around the corner, or at least they're told that. You know, we know that there aren't that many terrorists. You know, we're more likely to get hit by lightning than, you know, killed by a terrorist. And so More, more people die worldwide from peanut allergies than uh, no. terrorist attacks. <laughs> so, you know, your apprehension level needs to be, you know, at the level that is the real you know, threat, not way the heck up when, you know, somebody pops through the door. And to a certain extent, that's, you know, on both sides, you know, people look at police in a certain way and they kind of reflect that, you know, that animosity or distrust or fear or whatever it is. And, you know, we kind of create the situation that could be disastrous. Jake? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, obviously, that you know, I, I do think that there is an issue with, uh, you know, the way the way that uh, police are, uh, you, you know, the training, you know, going back even with the military, you know, to uh, uh, 
try to try to stir up the hornet's nest and you know create an animosity or you know uh, brainwash people into thinking that you know the you know that that's what they're thinking you know that they, they may they may harm you so you better be ready you know to harm back you know um you know i just i to to go along i i just feel like you know we got way too many situations where it just you know we're hyped up over nothing uh, and and in that right now we are you know we have we have way too the military's too big the police presence is too big and it's it's it is the the training you know the police on the east coast are the same as the police on the west coast uh you you know it's just too much hype over nothing right um and the different ways that they associate things that activists talk about with terrorism um i actually have a pdf copy of a uh, pamphlet handed out to law enforcement at one point that stated that Anybody who watched the Zeitgeist film was probably involved with, or or involved with militias, you know, or yeah. and anybody who is interested in the Federal Reserve, well they are terrorist suspects even though I've yet to see any terrorist acts committed by any United States citizen because of the banks. You know, I mean there was that guy who flew his plane into the building that I I did a show about wrote uh, Mr. Stack or whatever. Right. You guys can listen to that show on my archives too. Um, but as far as like, you know, the way they make it out, you know, especially when you read some of the legislation that they propose, when I was running for Congress, I had to, of course, do all of that. And, you know, they make it sound like terrorism, like there's just suicide bombers, you know, leaping into McDonald's every five minutes, you know, we need to do something about this right now. And, you know, what I always found to be kind of contradictory, regardless of anybody's feelings about border issues, is the fact that. Um, they're really concerned about, you know, uh, feeling up three-year-olds at the, you know, the, you know, the, the airport, but they're not too big on closing the borders to Mexico. You know, if there was this huge, you know, rash of terrorists, you know, people who are interested in being terrorists, I mean, if I were an Arabic terrorist, I'd just get on a boat, go to Mexico, and walk across the United States border with all the other slightly dark-skinned, mustached men, you know, I mean, you, in, especially in a distance, you couldn't pick out the difference between an Arab and a Mexican. So, you know, if, if that's what they wanted to do, it wouldn't even be hard. You know, if you're worried about any group of people coming into the United States, I think they've figured out that the planes are probably not the best way to do it anymore. You know, no guerrilla tactic fighter worth his you know weight would ever try the same tactic twice. You know, if you're going to have... Uh, more and more, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, I understand, you know, if it was a problem, you'd have to look into it, but it's clear that they're only worried about certain things, and the funny thing is, is that the more, the, the laws and the regulations that they've made to keep the terrorists, quote-unquote, protect us from the terrorists, they're affecting our lives, you know, they're not affecting anybody, you know, who actually might be in a position to do it, you know, that, that's why I said it just, it's, it becomes more and more clear over time that, they're not really as worried about people from, you know, Arabic countries as they are citizens in this, you know, this very country. Well, and there's, a, there's an element that, that, you know, somebody has, whether they're in the military or whether they're, uh, you know, a policeman and that, you know, that is, is that they're protecting people, you know, and that they're protecting them from these perceived evils, you know? Mm -hmm. And so to a certain extent, when you attack those, perceived evils and you know make them not look so dangerous it, you know to some it basically hurts their pride you know or at least it feels like to them it's an attack on their pride and you know that's the kind of thing that you know 
I think to a certain extent, you know, we, when you say something like, you know, we support the troops and, you know, thank you for your service and that kind of thing, you know, we're kind of perpetuating the wrong idea about, you know, we're almost perpetuating the illusion and, and keeping that illusion alive for, you know, for those that, that want to use that to rationalize, you know, what they do. You sure. Know, it's not the pe- it's not the paycheck for them. It's the it's the fact that they're they're being a hero to everybody else. And when you accuse them of of you know basically fighting ghost, they they you know they lose their hero status. You know, in, in their mind. And so, you know, that's why I think a lot of them act rashly. You know, when they're you know when really they they have you know they're idealists. You know, right. they they really have a, a good, you know, they they have a good intention, but they're, you know, they're basically sold on an illusion. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, it's like, you know, to a certain extent, you know, once you kind of learn that there's an illusion out there, you, you kind of see that the guy that's really the best police officer is the guy that's kind of sitting in his car kind of minding his own business, not really doing anything, you know, (laughs) if he can waste most of his day, you know, fiddling around with a computer or something like that, you're actually, you know, I'd be over there saying, thank you for your service. (laughs) You're doing a hell of a job. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And I I guess the other side of that, particularly when I'm dealing with anarchists, what I usually have to explain to them is like, you know, I totally get that I, I despise police brutality, no question. I expose it when I see it. I do talk about it on my radio shows. But I think they also tend to forget, you know, um, by the way, <laughs> you know, they, they also do sometimes arrest, in fact, most of the time, arrest people who are actually committing crimes. It does happen. And you don't really want those people, you know, raping your, your sister or your wife. You know, you know, and that's another thing, unfortunately, that affects these people psychologically. Uh, there was actually a um, episode of Cops Too Hot for TV, and um, at one point, because it was too hot for TV, they went into a house where a guy had gone crazy and pulled the "I'm going to shoot everybody in the family" thing, and mm-hmm. you know, because of course they're not going to play that live, but they they literally went through every room. Every one of the children was shot, including the little baby who could not have been more than three months old. So imagine you're a person and you walk into that, you know, um, and you you imagine the psychological impact. And there was a cop, I guess, who's been frequently on cops who was there. And he says, you want to understand why cops sometimes have an attitude or shoot themselves or, you know, you remember the other things, you know, then just just take a good look at what you just saw, you know. Go back and watch it again a few times, you know, or you know, and then you'll get some concept of what it's like to be a police officer. And I don't feel that that means that I'm trying to glorify police officers. As I said previously, I'd like that we did things to society to just prevent crime in the first place through, you know, positive solutions. You know, if there's a drunk driving problem, design cars that, you know, don't let people drive while drunk. Um, <laughs> you know, if there's a you know, if, if there's a problem with jaywalking here, then find a way to get people across the road without getting hurt. You know, design the infrastructure in a way that prevents the need for a lot of these ridiculous laws 
and then the need for the state starts to go away. That's essentially yeah. what the, the whole zeitgeist movement solution would be, is that you know you need to look at the root causes of crimes, figure out what they are, and then eliminate those causes at the source, as opposed to putting more cops out in the field who can only, at best, catch people hopefully in the act or show up later and punish them when they're only doing what's natural in a situation where perhaps the economy has dropped so much that they're stealing to feed their families or selling drugs to feed their families. You know, throwing those people in jail makes a lot of money. You know, one of the benefits of me uh, being a friend of Senator Mike Gravel is I read his book and he talked, he coined the term prison industrial complex. You know, that there's all kinds of money being made doing that. And they're calling for even more of, uh, you know, even more privatization of it and turning it into a for-profit corporate business, which terrifies the hell out of me. You know, um, whether I agree with everything Michael Moore says or not, um, his film Capitalism, A Love Story, when he exposed that privatized, you know, juvenile facility where there was a judge on the take who was sending kids to that facility for years at a time for something as stupid as throwing a stake at your stepfather – one of the kids in question, you know, you start to understand that, you know, this system, they, they want to throw more of us in jail. That's what the whole war on drugs is about, you know, and then unfortunately, this is the part that we have to remember is not to dehumanize the people who have been manipulated to believe that what they're doing is helping people, you know, mm -hmm. and try to reach them. I mean, so, and that also, I mean, we talked a lot about the police. Now let's talk a little bit more about soldiers now, you guys are both servicemen, it's, uh, former servicemen, and it's funny that you mentioned the, the communists because one of the things that I said is that, you know, before the, the terrorists, we had the communists, and before the communists, we had the Russians, and the, or, you know, I'm sorry, not the Russians, the Germans and the Nazis, and then, you know, before them, it was, you know, it was this group or that group, or, you know, remember when it was the, you know, the Red Men, the evil savages of the West, you know, yeah. always someone around to justify, you know, government protection, and, you know, usually they were always people that had something we wanted from them, you know, so, yes. so, I mean, and I guess then my, my, my first question then obviously would be, you know, obviously, you know, your, your CO is, was looking out for the possibility of communist infiltrators. You know, I'm sure that Muslims in the military probably don't do so well. Um, and I, I guess my next question then would be to you guys is just like during the time that you were in the military, did you and your fellow soldiers ever talk about, you know, government corruption or anything, you know, along that line or, you know, did you ever say to yourself, you know, so what are we going to do if they ever order us to shoot protesters or something? Um, well, you know, for me, um, I, I think I think the when I was in the military and I really started to see that things were messed up was uh, when I, I was stationed at headquarters Marine Corps in Washington D.C. for about a year and a half, and. Uh, you know, while I was there, I was, I was, uh, I did a lot of, uh, I, I did purchasing. I, I, I basically bought supplies and, uh, different things for my unit and for, you know, the Marine Corps and whatnot. Uh, and then we also did contracts. And, uh, you know, as far as having conversations with one another, I, I did, I do remember that we started to, uh, you know, me and a couple of my friends at that time, we started to discuss, you know how wasteful the the budgetary process is in the military and uh are we are we on yeah we are on okay uh yeah you know um 
you, you know, I mean, that to to me that was the biggest thing. I mean, did we ever did we ever get into a situation where we were saying, okay, what if we get orders to, uh, you know, shoot protesters? You know, I I can't say that anything like that ever really became an issue. Now, I did I did actually do a security detail uh, during uh, Bush's inauguration uh, when he was, uh, you know, when they did that whole parade thing there. Uh, there was there was quite a few Bush protesters and whatnot out there, and you know we were put, we were sent out there to kind of keep an eye on that situation. But you know, I mean, at no point in time were we given anything to be like really all that aggressive. And I and I remember actually kind of thinking, you know, I agree with these people, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I agree with them, you know. But but here I am standing on the line, you know, to make sure that nobody you know nobody does anything. Um, all I can say is that, yeah, you know, I mean, we, we, you know, in, in regard to our specific duties as in, into what we were doing, the money that we were wasting, the strategy that we used, you know, that, that was, that was the extent of my experience that we were like, man, th- you know, this is just ridiculous. This is, there, there's just something completely wrong with this situation. Yeah, I, I would say in you know regard to my time, I mean I was in the army in the late '80s, early '90s, and uh, you know I got to see, I was in Germany when the the whole thing you know fell apart basically, and you know I I think I the thing that really stands out in my mind is when I was at the the Paris Air Show, and. Uh, I actually, this was the first one that the Russians, you know, or the Soviets had their equipment at. And I actually got to walk up and look at some of the, you know, the Russians' finest technology. And when I when I got up there, you know, one of them was the, the their Havoc helicopter. And I, and I walked up to this thing and I thought, oh my God, this thing is a piece of junk. You know I mean, mm-hmm. it was just so poorly made, and the the fact that it was at like the Paris Air Show, it was supposed to be like the best, you know. I mean, the best that they had. I mean, I could just see how crappy it was, and, and to me, it was just like, you know, these feet. Th- this isn't like it is. You know, I mean, I could just, you know, it just absolutely like the bubble popped as far as the Soviets being a threat. You know, I, I was just. At that point, I was done, and that was probably like 1988. I realized that, uh, you know, the the Soviets weren't really, you know, as bad as we had, you know, cooked them up to be. Of course, well, it, nuclear weapons and everything, you know, but sure, uh, you know, the fact that they were going to invade Western Europe or anything like that, I pretty much, you know, was at ease at that point. <laughs> Oh, absolutely, and I think that it, it's funny that you point out, as you said, cooked up, you know, made them, made them look like they're worse than they are, is an example of that kind of propaganda, because I remember the same thing at, at that same time period. I was kind of, a, at least for a brief part of my life, an Air Force brat. My brother was an engineer. He made the flight simulator for the F-16. Um, I mean, not alone, but he was on the team, mm-hmm. and, you know, and I went to air shows constantly, and I remember, you know, the the big darkness about, ooh, the MiG-28, you know, and some of the other Russian things that were there, like the uh, the Russian hind helicopter, I've heard is actually still a pretty formidable machine but for what it does. But overall, 
there we found out when the iron curtain came down that they were bluffing about a great deal of their uh or at least they called it a bluff anyway that's what was said in popular culture you know about their nuclear capability was nowhere near what we thought their you know their military capabilities in so many other ways was nowhere near what they thought and i realized why would they you know the government tell us all this crap but i'm like oh well, yeah, you need to make people afraid of someone so that they'll be willing to go to war against them. You know, right. and the whole point of the Cold War was we're waiting for the opportunity that we could, you know, take against the Russians. And overall, though, you know, it's it's pretty much I watched a documentary recently uh, by the guy who did Century of Self. He, he did one called The Power of Nightmares. I think the two of you should watch it if you haven't already, because it's freaking hilarious. Just how, this, uh, in regard to like Al Qaeda and yeah, and Al Qaeda yeah. not really. I mean, it's like in Zeitgeist Addendum at one point he points out that you know that Peter Joseph says that you know that Al Qaeda as we understand it doesn't exist, and I didn't understand what he meant until I watched this movie. But basically, that Al Qaeda was actually a very small group of men. You know that in fact, like a lot of the footage that we've seen of them is propaganda footage. Like there's a shot of. Osama bin Laden talking to like 12 guys in ski masks with AK-47s. Right. You research that, you find out that it was all hoax. You know, like yeah. he hired those people to follow him around. <laughs> you know, yeah. and the guys in Afghanistan were, you know, see, trying to find Al Qaeda and they never seemed to. You know, they were fighting the Taliban, you know, because, well, they lived there. But, <laughs> you know, they were supposed to be fighting this Al Qaeda thing that doesn't seem to exist, you know. And I think that, you know, you made a very good point that people, they, they need that, that hero complex because it's it's supposed to be the benefit that they're fed during their, you know, military conditioning to tell them, well, hey, you know, um, you know you're going to do this, you're going to fight for mom and apple pie, and, and it's going to be awesome, you know, and there's these really big bad guys over there, and you need to go get them. And these people tell themselves that stuff to make them feel more secure, you know, when they're getting shot at. You know, and it takes some time generally for the 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 shine of that polish to you know to kind of get dull and the truth of the matter to really be revealed. And right. that's how I mean. I, I had a great interview actually with somebody from Veterans Against the War. Have you guys ever talked to them? Are you members of that organization by chance? Uh, well, I think Adam Kokish. IVAW, yeah. Yeah, IVAW, and uh, yeah, I guess VFW is another one that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, you know, I'm not a member or anything, but, uh, you know, been associated with at various times. You know, I was going to, I was going to say a, a little bit ago, um, when we were talking about the, uh, you know, the perception of the, uh, you know, the, against the war, again, uh, against the war, uh, anti-war is equivalent to anti-soldier, and, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I was going to comment on that, that, uh, you know, basically what I believe is that, you know, there's, there is definitely a, an agenda, you know, that's taken place. And, uh, I think that there's been a movement to avoid, avoid going in that direction. You know, I think that there's been a movement through media and, you know, other social outlets that are available out there. Um, you know, because there was a lesson learned, you know, I think, I think if you look at the, you know, essentially the hippie movement, you know, this was, this was a pretty, this was a pretty successful actually, you know, gathering and, uh, joining of people, uh, to, uh, kind of, kind of, uh, 
team up and and say, hey, we were we're not going to stand for this, you know. And uh, there was there was a uh, you know, and I, and I believe there was maybe a little bit of a press back in those times to uh, to associate that with one another. And it was you know we had they they had everybody kind of fighting with one another. And uh, I think I think they really kind of learned their lesson to avoid getting us into that same situation. Now now uh, you know mothers of soldiers who've died overseas are you know oppressed. You, you know we, when we went out to uh, Mississippi for one of the debates you know uh, during the last election circuit uh, you know we we ran into a tent out there that was like. Uh, you know, support the support the uh, war and the troops, or something like support that. Support the know. mission and the yeah. Troops. Support the mission and the troops. You know, now that's more the focus. You know, it's it's focused more in that direction where you see a lot more of that kind of thing happening. So so now, if you're against the war, you're immediately also against the troops. You know, it's just one more little obstacle in the way of being somebody to speak up and say something about what's going on you know and and and, and, and obviously you know being down there and being the loudmouth that I am you know I I I went over and I I talked to the people at that at that table and uh you know here here I am I'm I'm a I'm a veteran of this and here I'm now a, a anti troop person you know that's that's, right that's that's immediately you know but by me speaking out you know and saying you know asking them questions about you know how how can you support the war and all that kind of stuff i'm immediately associated to you know this simple mindset that's been indoctrinated in in you know people that buy that line as oh you're against the war well you're against the troops you know and it's just you know i i think it's been a clever uh, you, you know, Propaganda absolutely campaign. disastrous. But you know, I mean, it, it's a, it's an effort that's been made to you know, yeah, it's propaganda but, to drive that to drive that little uh, you know conflict into people's minds. But but the thing is, it's it's very profitable. It's very rewarding. I mean, you know, for the pragmatists, everything happens for a reason, and the reason is I'm ahead. You know. And so in a lot of cases, everybody that succeeded has succeeded because they made money, you know, and they gained power. And so what they did was justified in their mind. And and those are the kind of things that we've got to, you know, identify and, and get people to look at and say, are these people being held accountable? You know, if they're going to say, you know, we're going to spend $40 million to build a bridge and then $40 million is spent and the bridge is a third of the way complete. Obviously you'd say, Hey, uh, you know, what the heck happened? You know, we're not spending any more money because this bridge isn't completed. You know, why would we give you any more money? And that's the kind of the thing is that, you know, the one thing about government that it really blows it up, you know, is the idea of accountability. Mm-hmm. Is if you can make people accountable for what they say, then then they really lose, you know, they lose their their justification for what they're doing. Right, and that's and that's where they hide the accountability. You know, I mean, instead of us discussing, you know, holding anybody accountable for the actual results of of this money that we've spent, of the people that have died, and this venture. 
You know, we're sitting here arguing over who's for what. You know, it's it's ridiculous. And, and, you know, I mean, it's genius. It's genius on their part. But it's, sure, <laughs> sure. No, it's it's propaganda at its finest, the different work that they do. And that, that actually kind of brings me to an interesting question for both of you individually. I'll start with Jake. Um, was there a point at which, you know, all of the the kind of brainwashing that they put troops through at boot camp and all of that, when the, when the spell was broken for you, um, where, where you just kind of went, you know what, I, I think I was fed a, a line of crap, you know. But was there any point at, at which during basically your career when you, you went from one side to the other? Um, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, a Marine, a Marine is a very proud individual, you know, and uh, trust me, I was no exception. I, I was, uh, I was definitely a proud Marine, you know, I mean, I was boot camp, I bought in everything. Marine, I mean, right? it, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, once Marine, always Marine, all that kind of good stuff. But, uh, you know, yeah, there, there, there was at some point where, uh, something, something clicked to me. I, 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 and to be honest, you know, I think that moment for me where I really kind of realized everything was the same answer that I gave you to the first question. You know, when I, when I watched the Ron Paul thing, up until then, it was you know I think I think that there was maybe a little bit of a of a denial of what was going on you know um, I think at different times while I was on active duty I was uh, I was maybe not I, I was I was not in agreement with what we were doing in Iraq uh, you know and and uh, Afghanistan and I saw and and I saw you know like how wasteful we were with uh, the way that we were doing things I definitely was in I, I just completely disgusted with the fact that we had uh civilian contractors playing the role of uh of everything I mean I was going to say support elements to you know infantry units but we had civilian contract infantry units over there I mean they you know just all that stuff didn't make any sense to me so um, who are making ridiculous amounts of money too? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. So you know, I mean, I guess to answer the question, you know, there was a there was a fog, you know, that I that I was that I started to kind of, you know, by the time my enlistment was coming to an end, that I was I was just not in agreement with what took place. But to be honest, I think the the moment that everything kind of clicked, and I realized how you know you know, how the things that I was trained and the way that I was trained to think and all that kind of stuff just lends to the environment of, uh, you know, sending us to all these countries and, and intervening and everything and all that kind of stuff. That that point came home to me when I watched Ron Paul and, uh, you know, I, I watched him, you know, basically say, we're, you know, they came and did this to us because we're doing all these things, you know? And I was like, hmm, that makes sense now. Well, now, I guess then to, to say before the Ron Paul thing, though, you said that, you know, you started to stop supporting your mission. Now, uh, did you go over there agreeing with the mission? Did you go over there believing what you were told in, es in essence? I mean, nobody could fault you for it. I mean, but, you know, so the idea is, is did you go over there, though, believing that what you were doing was in theory for the Iraqi people? And then just over time started to realize that just wasn't the case? Um, I, 
didn't I didn't understand anything until uh after I'd come home come home from overseas. I I I wasn't I was still a clueless while I was overseas that that entire time. I was I was a jarhead. Do you think that they made that there are efforts that perhaps the government goes through to keep people like, you know, quote unquote marines, jarheads in in the, you know, in that clueless state? Um, I think that it's I think it's possible. I think uh Well, it's kind of like being on a football team, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I think it's I th- I don't think it's, you know, I mean, I don't think like, you know, my direct frontline uh supervisors, my staff NCOs or my commanding officer or anybody, you know, I mean, I don't think it's trickled down like that. I think that's more of a society kind of thing, you know. I think that's just okay. something that uh, you know, it, it, that begins from watching movies when you're a little kid and stuff like that, you know. Um, I, I think that uh, for the most part, most people are, in my experience, mo- most people are just excited to be a Marine. And, you know, Mike and I have talked about this before. And, you know, I think where he was about to go with this is, you know, it's like being on a football team and you practice and you practice and you practice. You go to boot camp that's practice. You know, you go to you go on to, uh, out to the field and do exercises. You know, that's practice. And then here comes a war, and that's your opportunity to get into a game. You know, and so, right. so you're kind of built. It, it, you know, it, it, to me, it's it's not you know as black and white. You know, to be in the military and have this kind of thing. You know, I mean, I, I don't think that it's perpetuated because they're making an effort to do that. I think it has a lot more to do with just, you know, your own existence as a military member, you know, to 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 want to participate, to want to train, to want to be good at what you do, and then the opportunity comes along to go and partake in something, you know, you're more drawn to go go participate because of something like that. Now, okay, I understand, and actually, I, I have a lot of friends who are Marines, and I I totally get that. Um, the whole Semper Fi. You know, there's a, there's a, a camaraderie, a brotherhood about it that you don't experience in some other, you know, in a lot of other places. You know, when somebody's a Marine, you can almost tell just by talking to them. There's a certain culture about it, and you know, and I can see where your loyalty could be to something like that pretty easily. It's it's appealing even to people, you know, outside of it. You know, I always had a lot of admiration, you know, for that 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 attitude about it. You know, about you know brotherhood and all that, that the Marines had at the time. Um, in fact, when I was thinking about joining the military, that's where I wanted to go for that reason. Um, and health-wise, I was never going to do it, thankfully. I have a hole in my heart, so um, there was just no way. Um, but either way, though, I, I totally get that. I guess then it, what, what comes to mind, though, is uh, films like you know, Good Morning Vietnam, where a, a radio host gets in trouble for sharing news with the troops that is not approved or gone through proper channels because they don't want troops hearing certain things. I guess mm-hmm. then we, you know, kind of come to the point of, you know, uh, did how, how did you guys get your news when you were over there, and how did people react to it? And and I mean, did you just turn on the TV like anyone else, or? I mean, I, I think that you know there there is. I'm not saying that things like that are not taking place. I think I think things like that are definitely taking place on a higher on a higher level. You know, I mean, um, it's. Uh, you know, it's disguised by you know morale. You know, they don't they don't want morale to be low. You know, you don't want a bunch of troops being in a situation where you know lives are on the line and the and the morale could be affected by you know propaganda. Now you know now the truth is propaganda. You know, um, 
you know, I, I think I think things like that are happening, but on a much higher, you know, that's that stuff trickled down from a higher level. Well, you know, it's unfortunate that there is a valid point to that. I mean, you don't want morale destroyed by propaganda. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say when you know my experience when I was in Germany, you know, you you are in kind of a bubble, you know, where you're only getting, you know, like for us, we get armed forces, radio, and television, and then you know most of the most of the information is, you know, effectively given to us by, you know, what we hear on the radio or the TV is what, you know, the brass is telling us what what we want to hear or what they will allow us to hear. And, you know, of course, you get letters and stuff like that in the, in the you know, in the mail at that time. We didn't have email or any of that kind of stuff. So, of course, there's a little difference nowadays. But to a certain extent, you know, you're you're you know you're like in antarctica or something you know you don't really know what's going on in the real world you just got your little bubble you know and to a certain extent you know if you if you watch the movie uh uh what is it black hawk down right there's a part at the end of the movie where the like the guy that's in the delta force he basically is like you know he's like he's going to go back and they're like uh, no, i was thinking about that go ahead <laughs> and you know he basically says you know um it's you know it's for the other guys i'm i'm there for the other guys about the guy next to you yeah and that's the you know it's the family you know when you go through a lot of different things that really nobody else has that kind of experience and i think this is the same with the police too you know when you go through these kind of experiences where you see you know tragedy happen you know nobody in the regular you know no nobody that's a civilian and I say that kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, because police should be civilians too, but uh, nobody that's in a regular person kind of sees that stuff on a daily basis to the point that, you know, they just don't understand what is going on. And really all you have is the people around you that you can rely on, and they, they are the ones that understand, you know, the kind of things that you've got to deal with. And so to a certain extent, you know, that's a little bit of understanding. <clears throat> I don't know. If... No, no, that makes perfect sense. And actually, that that's an interesting point that kind of goes back. I and mean, we were talking about the psychology of police officers. You know, the same thing is true of soldiers. And, you know, in fact, a lot of soldiers, when they come back from the service, you know, people think they're jerks or, man, the service turned you into an asshole or whatever. And um, what they don't realize, and I, I learned this by just from my different studies and stuff, was that, it's kind of hard to relate to somebody like that. You know, it's like you tell a you know, soldier that you have a, a dilemma. You're really upset about something. Maybe your car broke down. So you're telling to a, you know, you're freaking out and bitching to this guy who used to get shot at on a regular basis, you know, who's probably seen children blown up at one time or another. And you're just whining to him endlessly like you've got a serious, you know, dilemma and a crisis on your hands. And it becomes difficult for that person to relate to you, you know, because they're like, really? I mean, you're upset about this? This is a crisis? You know, it's, it becomes to the point because now their whole idea of what a crisis is is way different. You know, it's true even just in different cultures. Like, you know, I grew up mostly in really bad, bad, violent neighborhoods, and I remember going to rich neighborhoods every now and then, and, you know, the kids there were very different, you know, and their idea of getting into a fight was maybe pushing each other. I came from a neighborhood where 
I, you know, with my instincts immediately, like someone's going to get shot, you know, <laughs> somebody, <laughs> somebody is going to get shot because of this. I'm, I'm getting out of here because, you know, and of course it never happened because we're talking about the burbs here, but yeah. I realized that those kids would never understand where I was coming from trying to explain that, you know, that they've never been in that situation. It was funny because I made friends in that other culture and then brought them back with me and they lived with me and my mom for a while. So they got to see their first drug bust when the SWAT team showed up at my neighbor's house and busts down the door and throws the flashbangs. And, you know, they're all glued to the freaking window like they're watching an action film. And I was just sitting there playing Sega Genesis like it was no big deal because they've only done it 20 other times at the other time that I lived there. You know, it was such a different attitude. And I don't – this is important to activists to understand the stuff that you're talking about, you know, is the camaraderie. It's also a note that it's like you can't even – until somebody's been in that situation, you can't communicate with them in the same way. The same associations don't come up. I mean, I didn't even realize how unusual my life was until one day I was sitting there with a friend of mine, and we were watching the movie Last of the Mohicans, if I remember correctly. And it's late one night, and he's from he was from like Farmington Hills or some really rich neighborhood. And, you know, we had met by chance playing laser tag, I think. And he comes over to my house, and you know, and we're sitting there watching that movie, and, you know, I hear, you know, just automatic weapon fire, probably block away. I don't even flinch. And he's like, holy, you know, just jumps up and is, like, scared out of his gourd. And I'm just like, I was like, oh, what's up? He's like, what the hell is that? I was like, it sounded like an AK-47, you know? <laughs> he's like, does that happen often? I'm like, yeah. And I just go back to watching the movie, because I'm used to that. He's not. And... It, I eventually adjusted to it, but that's, you know, when I went into that world, it was it was hard to communicate to people, to me, what a violent situation is. <laughs> you know, it was hard to communicate to them, you know, where I was coming from because they, they just never, never understood it, never interpreted it. And that's why, you know, Jack Fresco talks about this. When you're trying to reach someone and trying to teach them or make them aware of something, you have to appeal to their values. You have to try to see them from their perspective. That's what I was trying to say when I provided that information about that police officer, for example. Police are nervous when they pull you over because that's where most cops get shot. You know, it, it, it doesn't justify the fact that the cop is pulling you over for BS laws. It doesn't justify, you know, what happens if the cop decides to be, you know, violent or whatever. But again, root causes. You know, it, that that's the issue that... You know, I think I think people, particularly activists, if they're going to reach out to these soldiers, if they're going to reach out to, you know, the police, which is what's going to be needed someday, then they're going to have to be able to understand that these people are alien. You're, you're dealing with a different kind of human being at that point, whether they were brainwashed to be that way or whether the, the things that they saw have changed their ability to interact with other human beings. They're different. You know, they're still, however, human beings who do have feelings, who have a value, you know, and uh, in the many ways, there is, in my opinion, no greater victim of the system than a police officer who has been conditioned enough to believe that macing six innocent girls is an acceptable behavior. We can hate the police officer, but you should really think to yourself what you would feel like if you ever did something like that. And then imagine that, you know, let, let's just, let's put a little bit of fiction into it. Let's say that somebody took over your body and forced you to smay six children. You know, 
Then imagine that somebody, say, I don't know, let's give you an example, an alien or whatever possessed you, took you over, made you think differently, and made you do that. That's a nightmare, you know, and that's essentially what has happened to these people. And what's worse is, like, you know, unlike the invasion of the body snatchers, these people still believe that it's them that's doing that. It doesn't occur to them that, you know, I've been in some way conditioned to believe that this is acceptable behavior. Those people are the biggest the biggest victims of the system in so many ways, because if I, you know, I'm an atheist, but if I were to say I believed in a soul, those people have had their souls taken from them, you know, in a way that is never going to get fixed. You know, the same thing is true of soldiers who get sent over and get mentally broken by the things that they were made to do. Those are perhaps the biggest victims of the world, you know, in, in so many ways, victims of the system. And it, that's why I tell people, activists and things, because, you know, like when I said I was going to do a show about this, it was very controversial. There were a lot of people complaining about it, actually. And I said, look, just shut up and hear us out, because there's a point to be made here. Because the same reasons that you hate the system, you know, the innocent victims and the human beings and all that are, are the same. You know, these are still human beings. And any human being who has found themselves to the point that they are essentially corrupted enough to the point that they have lost their ability to perceive that what they are doing is wrong, you know, it's kind of like this. I'd rather get shot by a Klingon in Star Trek than become a Borg. <laughs> now that's a little over my head. I, I I agree. I agree with you, and I think that the way that you're presenting that information is probably the best, you know, way to, um, you know, potentially solve you know, solve this, you know, it's, it's like Mike says, you know, he's big Gandhi, you know, he believes in what Gandhi did, you know, I, I think that, you know, you're on the right track as far as, you know, if you were to communicate with somebody and, and try in an attempt to try to make a change, but at the same time, I also feel like, you know, where, you know, whose fault is it then, you know, I mean, do we, do we say that, you know, it's all, the you know the system or whatever it's all of it, its fault or is it is it the police officer is it the police officer's fault who did that well for not you know for not having the self awareness and the and just the consciousness or the or the integrity to well, you know reflect upon yourself to say no this doesn't sound right to me. Yeah. Let me let me jump in here because I'll, I'll say it's like this. You know, if you're if you're working with a, a giant machine full of gears, and you stick your hand in the machine, and you get your hand caught in the in the gear, whose fault is it? It's yours. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is, is you either gotta, you know, see the situation and say, you know what, I need to put a guard over this place where the gears where I can stick my hand in it and and solve that problem you know because i know it's going to be a problem right you know and i think that's kind of the same thing with this you know at the at the end of that blog that i have there's a little thing of there's a little like four minute video of a guy that was like the head of the kkk and he's talking about uh harassing a a black preacher and you know they did different things they tried to burn down his church they called him on his phone and they threatened him. They burned a cross in front of his, his house. And, you know, the response that he got from the preacher, the black preacher, is effectively the same response that solves this problem. It's, it's not to be afraid. 
you know, it's to basically understand that, you know, the other side, you know, like, and I think it's like the, it's probably the most <laughs> information you can get out of a four minute video, you know, because it, it's basically explaining how, you know, how it works. And, you know, this, like I said, they, they you know, burned a cross across from his house. The preacher comes out and he says, guys, you want some hot dogs and marshmallows for your fire? You know, <laughs> and basically, you know, totally decimates, you know, their idea is to terrorize him. And his idea is to make fun, you know, kill them with and, kindness. Yeah. And the, the the whole thing is, is, is that's the kind of, of, uh, you know, of way to kind of, you know, diffuse the situation in a thinking way that that actually resolves, that actually gets people to think. You know, right? I mean, that, that's what I'm saying. I, I I think that you know, taking it and looking at it from that from that perspective, you know, is is probably the way to solve the problem. You know, I agree with that. Now, a, an interesting experience that comes to mind talking about protesters again, when I had uh, Danny Shine, uh, formerly of the Love Police, I don't know if you guys mm -hmm. are familiar, yeah. um, during the course of the uh, the protest against the um, uh, the royals, like the royal wedding and all the money being spent on it, you know, they just they just basically grabbed Charlie Veach and they just took him to jail before the thing even started because they knew right. he was going to be an issue. Danny is a little bit less known and so he walked up to the police that were there holding people back from the from the barrier and you know he you know related to them was very friendly with them talked to them you know got through to them and then eventually they let him beyond the barrier and they let him with his megaphone without giving him any trouble at all walk up and down the barrier and and protest there and talk to the people and he did that essentially through these communication skills of kill them with kindness it was so evident that he wasn't there to hurt anybody, that he wasn't going to create any problems, that he therefore in turn got to become even more effective as a yeah. protester because of what it is that he was doing and how he managed to convince those people, hey, I'm I'm just here and you know uh, this is what's going on. And, and you know when you probably think about it, if you talk to some of these people, they they probably think the royal wedding is a big you know bunch of bollocks too to use some british terms so if you can get through to them then you'd be treated differently if you go in there and you start spitting in the cop's face you know like screw you you know you're upholding the royals and all that well you're not going to get very far you know not only are you not it, it kind of comes back to that same thing i was in that radio show i did about that stack guy driving his plane into the side of a building you know i read the letter that he wrote on the air and i said you know and unfortunately because this guy flew a plane into a building after writing this, everything in here is now discredited. Everything this guy wrote, even though it's absolutely true, is now discredited. And if anybody ever tries to talk like this again, they'll be like, uh-oh, aren't you – you're like that crazy guy who flew a plane into the side of a building. You know, good good job. You know, I, I get that you're upset. I understand that. But you have now essentially held back – you know, held us back quite a bit. You know, it's – uh, and fortunately enough, that that issue kind of fell out to the wayside, and that the the issue of the bank's corruption is enough, you know, mainstream thanks to people like Ron Paul, that it didn't get buried. But at the end of the day, a guy flying into the side of an IRS building, killing himself and a bunch of other people, you know, and then writing a bunch of stuff that's the truth, it got attention to it to some degree. But on the same token, now it's easier for anybody who wants to discredit that information to just call somebody who, who talks like that crazy. Now, now, go ahead. 
Well, you know, there was another thing that I wanted to mention, and that was, uh, you know, along the lines of that uh, Wall Street, uh, Occupy Wall Street thing, uh, Dylan Radikin from MSNBC was down there, and there was a couple interviews with him kind of as he was leaving, and, you know, he expressed a lot of the same kind of, uh, you know, that we've, we've got an opportunity you know, to really go to another level, you know, like what uh, what Einstein said, you know, you're a problem, you're, to solve a problem, you have to go to the next level of, I'm not sure what, what the word was that he used, but, you know, the next level up as far as your, you know, your mental ability or your your understanding, you know, it can't, the problem that we have can't be solved until we actually approach it from that direction, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of the same thing. You know, if you look at like star Wars and the, the Jedi's, you know, the, the, and you like, Obi Obi-Wan Kenobi, when he, you know, he basically comes up to a stormtrooper and he says, you know, we're not, we're not a, a problem. Let us through or something like that. You know, he's basically just kind of screwing with their mind using the force or whatever. And they go, oh, no, he's not a problem. Let him through, you know. <laughs> but it's you know it's that kind of power that we have if we just understand, if we take the time to understand, you know, what people are, you know, what people are all about. And that's that's kind of the same thing, you know. It's it's not necessarily as quick as you know what Obi Wan portrays, but the fact of the matter is we have the ability that when we communicate with people that we don't just present, you know, the problem that we've got, but we actually listen to them for a second and possibly understand what motivates them or what, you know, what's important to them to the point that we can use that to our own benefit, you know, to further the cause. Right. Anything to add, Jake? No, I think you said a good... (laughs) <laughs> well, excellent. You know, it's been a it's been a great show having you guys on. I know you were talking about the possibility of restarting your show. Have you do you have any updates on that or? Well, we talked about it a couple of times. Um, you know, I, it, I think it's just a matter of you know getting getting to it. And just just need to. Well, you know, we don't have the same format. It was it was kind of easy with the you know the Ron Paul thing going on and the, mm-hmm. the Ron Paul Radio. You know the the guy that organized Ron Paul Radio, uh, DJ Lodi, was you know I met him in a, a Ron Paul group here in Pensacola, and so it was real easy to you know to kind of take that step. Now you know with all the different things and the technology you know. The fact that uh, you know Jake's got a full-time job that that keeps him rather busy and so forth, and so uh, you know there's a lot less time, and then there's there's oh sure podcasting on demand is definitely the way to go, so that you can do it when you do have the time. But yeah, either way though, I mean, uh, do you guys have archives to your previous work? Uh, you know, actually, it's, uh, it's out there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> right, if you guys used to have a website. That's that's what yeah. I was wondering. Yeah, our website is down at the moment. Um, you know, I mean, you know, trust me, it's not for a lack of, uh, you know, we're we're still just as adamant as ever before. Um, it's just, uh, 
You know, and I, and I know that, you know, this is the time, you know, it's been, what, it's been four, four years? Three years. Four years, three, four, three, four years since we did that, so, um, you know, yeah, I mean, it, it's just it's just a matter of sitting down and actually making it happen. Yeah, I, I definitely think, you know, I, I learned a lot, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, from your experience with the radio and everything, you can definitely speak to this and understand that, you know, it was a... A huge learning curve. Sure. Go through, you know, and I, I know us being novices in a lot of way ways, I suppose, helped us identify with the the audience as well, you know, to where we could make mistakes, <laughs> and then somebody could correct us, and we say, oh, you know, geez, I didn't know Abraham Lincoln was, you know, Nazi, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to look into it a little more. As much yeah. of a, a, a an abolitionist as people thought could be the, yeah. <laughs> the words that I would use. Yeah, it was like it was like we were learning together. You know, it was right. like everybody was learning together. No, and you know, and I, I agree. And I'm, and I look back on those times, and it, it's it's funny to me that you know that there are very few efforts actually that that were going on back then that are still going on. It it is also tough to. It's like I tell people when you, when you're doing this work because they ask me, for example, what it is that I'm doing that makes me think that donations might be in order. Sometimes, in order to do a high quality show, especially if I want to do them like regularly, uh, I put in eight to twelve hour days studying, writing blogs, you know, researching, calling guests, you know, and it does take a lot of work if you want to have a really good quality show, and it also means that. Um, I end up taking breaks every now and then just because I feel the burnout setting in and I don't yeah. want my listeners to get a crappy product, so to speak. So, you know, I don't I, – I, that's one of the reasons also I, I got off of schedules. Trying to do schedules like we used to do, you know, I just it, – it started to feel like a job. It, it doesn't feel like something that you're doing that you care about anymore. It's like, oh, great, you know, what are we going to do? You know, you, you start to really appreciate one element of the mainstream media is that – these people have entire teams working round the clock looking for stuff for their perspective talking heads to say the next day when they come on. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I can't imagine trying – I've tried to do radio every day once. It, it was terrible, you know, and I just <laughs> – I could do it. You guys could listen to me blab again and again and again and again, but you're going to get sick of it pretty fast, you know, and that's mm-hmm. why I don't do it anymore. I try to put them out as fast as I can come up with good, solid, you know, topics and good guests, but I think if nothing else, you know – um, it, it would be great, you know, if I could uh, call on you guys sometimes to be panelists because sometimes I do shows where maybe I write a blog or I, I read from a, a particular news article and then everybody in the panel gets to kind of take an opportunity to talk about the topic in like an open forum. So sure. you, know, you guys would be interested. You know, I'll call you up and it's it's always no obligation. It's whenever you can. So kind of, you know, enters in some new elements to the mix. Now, speaking of articles, um I pulled this one off of AOL News. Afghanistan and Iraq veterans, one in three vets reportedly view Iraq-Afghan wars as wastes. Uh, Washington. <laughs> yep. That's what's funny that you kept saying, man, what a waste, you know, because I, I was thinking about that as I was looking at this article. But Washington, one in three U.S. veterans of the post-9-11 military believes the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were not worth fighting. And a majority think that after 10 years of combat, America should be focusing less on foreign affairs and more on its own problems, according to an opinion survey released Wednesday. 
The findings highlight a dilemma for the Obama administration and Congress as they struggle to shrink the government's huge budget deficits and reconsider defense priorities while trying to keep up public support for remaining involved in Iraq and Afghanistan for the longer term. Nearly 4,500 U.S. troops have died in Iraq, Iraq and 1,700 Afghanistan. Combined war costs since the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks have topped $1 trillion. The poll resort results presented by the Pew Research Center portray post-9-11 veterans as proud of their work and scarred by warfare and convinced that the American public has little understanding of the problems that wartime service has created for military members and their families. The survey also showed that post-9-11 veterans are more likely than Americans as a whole to call themselves Republicans and to disapprove of President Barack Obama's performance as a commander-in-chief. It's funny is that, you know, you guys were saying you didn't like what Bush was doing. I mean, do you have any comments about, the, like, like Barack Obama? Uh, I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it, you know, it's shuffled the deck of cards. You got the same thing. Right, right. There's no, you know, there's no difference. There's no difference from one Republican, Democrat, you know, black, white, doesn't matter. It's all the same thing. The funny thing is, is the contradiction in that in that logic is pretty clear that a lot of these people are probably getting fed some crap. I mean, other than Ron Paul, he's the only non-neoconservative I've ever seen on in the Republican group yeah. ever. Yeah. You know, the rest of them are all right on board. And anybody who wants to understand what I mean by neoconservative, if you go to my website, one of the first videos listed in Must See TV is called. Uh, the New American Century, and it just details in great detail what it what a neoconservative is, and it also points out that the neoconservatives were basically like all around Bush, like a cabal of people who were telling him what to do. The Karl Roves, you know, the Rumsfelds, the people that you don't hear as much about, who probably should be impeached along with both of those people for what they did. Um, you know, in the end of the at the end of the day. These people don't even hide it. They literally believe that invading other countries and setting up puppet governments is the only way that the United States will be safe. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you listen to their doctrine, that's it, which is why it's, it's funny to me that they're saying they want to be Republicans and they don't like Obama, and then they think the war is a waste, considering it was Republicans that got them into that war. <laughs> yeah, not yeah. saying that a Democrat wouldn't have done the same thing. Don't get me wrong. Well, I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I don't think it's necessarily those <clears> – <throat> I mean, obviously those guys are the ones doing that, but I mean, Halliburton is the one who thinks that it's, uh, you know, who convinces us that, you know, we need to be fighting wars in three different countries at the same time, you know, because that increases their, uh, you know, their bottom line. You know? Right. Well, the thing is, is again, it's accountability. You know, if if they can steal a hundred billion, you know, tomorrow they're going to say, hey, you know, maybe I should go for a hundred and fifty billion. You know. Right, yeah. right. And it really just keeps snowballing. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, a lot of the the soldiers do, to a certain extent, have the ability to, you know, make us aware. You know, like with uh, Bradley Manning. You know, I think uh, to a certain extent, he, you know, was was trying to, you know make people accountable for what was going on. This is the guy that shared the WikiLeaks or whatever. Yeah. Right. And, right you know, right. whatever you think of this guy, I mean, I, I, I tend to believe that, uh, you know, he, he had a noble idea. Uh, you know, those, until those people are held accountable, we're just going to keep getting worse because the pragmatists are in charge and they'll say, Hey, I'm justified 
it works. I got paid. Absolutely. Yeah. Were you going to say something, Jake? Uh, I was just going to say, you know, I mean, I, I remember on on the you know to comment on Bradley Manning. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think I think the guy has enormous courage. I, I mean, it just un. Uh, unbelievable amounts of courage, you know. I mean, uh, you know, I, I remember hearing those stories and you know getting the the snippets on what it was that he did, and I, you know, and I remember just being completely surrounded with negativity. And uh, it wasn't until about a couple of weeks ago that I sat down and really kind of read everything that took place. And I mean, there's no doubt that guy absolutely traded his. Uh, you know, he knew what he was trading. You know, he was trading his freedom and everything, and he knew that, you know, he was basically going to be, uh, you know... In trouble. Blasphemed, and, you know, for the rest of his life. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, is I believe Manning over all the crap that they they have tried to do to, to um, you know, well, take I mean, away his credibility. Much, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, he's not being put into a, a, a trial and not, you know, being able to defend himself pretty much says everything for me. That is, is that, you know, they don't want to present the case because their case is complete baloney. Yeah. You know? Right. And so, I mean, just by the fact that nothing is happening, that he's rotting away in a, in a prison, uh, you know, and not being given his due process, uh, effectively says everything, you know, that, you know, the, the government is, is obviously hiding something, you know, mm-hmm. for so, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's with the WikiLeaks thing, it's, it's so bad because in the, I mean, not saying that he did something wrong. It's so bad for the government in that it, it, the stuff that they say in their own words is damning enough. You know, there doesn't need to even be any discussion. The guy could just sit there and play the video of them shooting up those people on the, you know, from the Apache helicopter. They could, you know, uh, go through the different reports that, 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 you know, talk about civilian casualties. They, it's all just sitting there for you to look at. It reminds me of one of my favorite videos that exposes neoconservatives is how to create an angry American, where a guy takes a list, like, uh, like clips of all the different lies that the Bush administration told to us, right next to them admitting they were wrong or saying that they hadn't said that or, you know, just like literally clips of them saying it, you know, in their own words. Like, you know, like uh, at one point the lady from, I think it was Crossfires was, okay, you've been quoted as saying it was pretty well confirmed. This was in reference to confirmed that, you know, that uh, Saddam had been working with Al-Qaeda. And she's, he's like, oh, I never said that. What I said was, and then it pans immediately to him saying, well, it's pretty well confirmed that he did go to, you know, to create me. You know, just like, you watch that video and you just want to punch somebody. You're like, freaking really? You know, and then all the different times that Rumsfeld lied paired right next to the different times that, you know, that he said something. And then one of my favorites was, you know, the, all the different ways that they played up, you know, we don't want to see, you know, the, the, the smoking gun that is a mushroom cloud. And then it pans over to them and, you know, talking to George Bush, I was going to say interrogating, um, <laughs> you know, talking to George Bush up on the podium. And he says, you know, well, what, well, wait a minute, you know, what, what did the, you know, what did this, what did Iraq have to do with the attacks on, you know, attacks of 9-11? And then Bush just says nothing, <laughs> you know, because at this point the cat's out of the bag, you know, yeah, I mean, um, so now I guess uh, one final thing is we're coming to the end of the show. Um, 
that, that I wanted to cover. We talked a little bit about uh, private contractors, um, uh, people like Blackwater and all that. And I actually befriended a guy who apparently works for one of those private security companies. Um, and he talked to me about the fact that, uh, for example, there were private security on the ground uh, at, uh, you know, in New Orleans during the, the, the hurricane before the yeah. soldiers were there. Um, and I actually went and researched into what George Bush did to suddenly make that legal. Uh, and it's it's hilarious to me, the people who would say, well, that's just a conspiracy theory. And then you go look it up on the White House website and what executive <laughs> orders specifically that he did that state that it is now legal to use mercenaries on American soil. Okay. Yeah. Now, I mean, these not all of these groups are, are bad, you know, but the question is, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people who get into these kinds of groups are the kinds of people who are too crazy to be in the military, you know, and they end up, you know, I remember actually I, I, I dealt with a kid who was so militarized when he got out of the military that he he didn't it was very clear that he could not live as a civilian. And I asked him why. And he was like, well, you know, I they take care of everything. They take care of your clothes, your your food, you know, everything. He's like, I I can't seem to function in this world. You know, he couldn't get a job. You know, <laughs> you know, he went to Michigan, of course, which is, means nobody can function, ex-military or not. But but the point is though is is that you know I I was talking to him one day because he was so wrapped up in the military and so wrapped up and yeah we're doing the right thing. It's great. It's awesome. And then I asked him when he thought of Blackwater and then and and he's like, well yeah they're pretty rough, but. You know, the one you'd want to look at is, and he said it's a British-based company, and I keep forgetting the name that he gave me, but it's something security systems. And he said they're British-based, but they're not just all English people. You know, they, they hire people from everywhere, just like Blackwater does. And I said, well, what about them? He's like, well, you know, Blackwater's rough, but if you need somebody to go in and um, interrogate somebody by, say, stapling their seven-year-old daughter to the wall to get the, you know, uh, information about where the insurgents are, you call in these guys. You know, uh, need somebody's, you know, somebody's children's fingers cut off. You know, th th these are the ones you call, you know, and as he's telling me this stuff, just casual, you know, like it's no big deal, you know, uh, because he's so messed up. This kid was just gone. You know, um, it, it occurred to me that so now it's legal to deploy people who are capable of these kinds of things on American soil. And you ask yourself. Why would they have that motive? Because and it occurred to me, I'm like, you know, uh, you couldn't get American troops to do that. I mean, at least not the average ones by any means. Yeah, and But you could get mercenaries to do that. And that's actually one of the things the British did during the course of their occupation was they brought in German Hessians because oh, yeah. it was easier to get foreigners to do that than it would be, say, local troops or even British troops. You know, so in the event of some kind of collapse or, you know, whatever, I mean, what what do you think about the threat of independent contractors? Uh, well, I'll, I'll say, you know, I think it, it is it is a real disaster because you are looking at people that really have no allegiance to anything other than money. And, you know, they don't, you know, in a lot of cases, they don't have principles. Uh, you know, you're not going to be able to appeal to any kind of rationing rationale that you know that people won't do these kind of things you know there's a there's a school uh, you know in uh in Georgia there uh the school of soldiering mm -hmm. that effectively created a lot of these kind of people you know that that became death squads in South America and other places around the world 
Is that similar to the School of of Americas based in yeah. Florida? Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. That's what I was thinking of. I'm sorry. That's fine. But, you know, they basically trained, you know, these kind of people basically take this kind of a, a an attitude, to you know, and create these kind of people that, that you know, are death squads, you know, that they really have no, you know, and the, the thing is, is, you know, you, you don't just find these people on the corner. You got to really look for them. You got to look for the crazy SOBs that, you know, that become the maniacs that don't mind taking people's heads off or cutting children's fingers off or any of that kind of stuff. And of course they dress like everybody else, you know? So it's kind of hard to determine who's who, you know? And that's what you got with these, these kind of, you know, potentially, I'm, I'm not saying that all these civilian contractors are like this, but there's, some of them that are, that are extremely dangerous people, you know. And, you know, you see it now in Mexico with all these drug cartels and, and you know, people being beheaded in South Texas and stuff like that. You know that these are the same people. You know, they probably learned this stuff in Iraq and Afghanistan, and now they're, you know, possibly in some of the other Latin American countries where they had revolutions and so forth. But... They're now doing it in Mexico, and it's coming to Texas, and it's coming to Arizona. And uh, they are extremely dangerous. And uh, <laughs> really, you know, the thing is, is that you get somebody that's from, say, Chile. They have no recollection of American values or what America's about, you know. But they, they teach them English, and they bring them to America, you know. They could be work, walking or working for Blackwater, and you might just think they're, you know, another American, but they're not, and they're extremely dangerous. And in, in situations like that, particularly since, as I understand it, most of the independent contractors, especially the ones capable of stuff like that, don't really have the best reputation with the military individuals. I mean, there's going to be opinions that vary, of course, but, you know, it's circumstances like that where you're dealing with highly trained professionals who are extremely good at what they're doing and that kind of comes back to the situation of we're going to need other highly trained professionals to stop people like that yeah and it's the average guy with his hunting rifle is not going to be a match for a well-trained security force showing up and taking them down there's another thing that i've had you know i had to deal with with people who think well yeah we can do this i mean just look at waco and i tend to have to remind them that the only reason Waco went on for 60 days is because they had to pretend that they cared about the people inside. If this were a military incident, they'd have just rolled in there with tanks and it'd have been over in minutes. If they didn't just yeah. bomb the place, you know, it, it's it's not even the same animal. And that's one of the reasons why I say to people, we're going to need troops. Is in you know for the purposes of ending all of this, you know, not to perpetuate it, but to stop you know what what could come in those kinds of circumstances because. You know, no amount of hunting rifles or even the stockpile of AK-47s that they, you know, and other assault rifles that they had in Waco would have stopped a military assault. They stopped the ATF at the door. They they would not stop somebody intent on just destroying them. You know, that's... Yeah, they're going to stop a tank. Yeah, that's, I mean, I mean, they even did kind of roll them with tanks when you think about it in the yeah. interim. 
you know, there's a great documentary about that. I, you know, I had never really followed that very closely because they'll say, all right, well, there's a religious nut, you know. I didn't look into it enough, and then I finally, once I got my, you know, the reason I'm BTV is I have a documentary addiction, I watched Waco, The Rules of Engagement, and that documentary made me physically angry, like I had to go hit stuff, because I was so upset with what was done there, um, and I would recommend it to anybody who wants to learn more, not only about what happened in Waco, but just in general in you know, the kind of uh, mentality of the kind of people that you're going to need to be worried about during some kind of fascist, you know, dictatorship attempt, you know, during a collapse, uh, it's a lot more scary than you think. And at that time, it's going to be, you know, as you guys always put it, at least in the United States, the oath to uphold and pretend, you know, and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that would, you know, that it's going to end up hopefully saving some lives because we're not going to be able to do it all by ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Anything, Jake? Nothing. <laughs> We've All talked right. ourselves out. Excellent. <laughs> well, we're down to the last five minutes anyway, so I'm willing to go ahead and end this episode. Thank you guys both for being on. Um, whenever you do decide to get on or even just put up a website so that people can check out what you've done before, you know, uh, please let me know and I'll be happy to help promote your work. Um, and uh, thanks, you know, thanks again. Go ahead and uh, say good night. Well, I was just going to say before I go, Neil. Uh, you know, I wanted to commend you for you know keeping the keeping the faith and keeping the stuff going. I mean, you know, if it if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be on the radio tonight. And uh, you know, that's that in itself is is quite an accomplishment. Understanding all the you know the things that we've all had to deal with, the economy and all the other things that uh you know that obviously you're aware of mm-hmm. uh, the fact that you're still on the radio the fact that you're you know providing great content uh you know i just had the opportunity to, to listen to a few of your previous shows and you know they're great you know they're giving information out that's that that people need and uh you know that's a, that's a absolutely you know great effort well, thank that, uh, you. Needs to be commended, and uh, you know we really appreciate it. Well, excellent, and I'll probably talk to you guys a little bit off the air about that as well. Um, and uh, taking a moment then to say uh, thank you all for listening. You know everything that he's talking about, I basically owe to all of you, particularly in regards to your support during these difficult economic times. And you know I really appreciate everybody who has helped me through this, and the people who email me all the time and say things like. You know, thank you so much for what you're doing. I'm listening to all of your archives, and I'm like, you realize there's a hundred and three of them, right? <laughs> At the time in question, he's like, yep. You know, he's like, make some more, and I was like, it just, it really, for me anyway, especially due to health issues and and you know my financial situation, this is the best activism I can do. I can't really get out to protest. You know, I can't go to marches, and it just, it isn't in the cards. Not that there's anything going on in Michigan anyway. Since, I mean, there is. Don't get me wrong, but. In comparison, you know, there are people here who are just so damn poor that they're just doing their best to get by. And if it wasn't for the support of my listeners, I would not be able to do this. So I appreciate every single one of you. And so thanks again for tuning in tonight, folks. And um, I will uh, – my next show, actually, I haven't decided on what I'm working on yet. I'm still working on a lot of the other ones we talked about. The the geothermal expert keeps assuring me that he doesn't want to be on, but being an MIT professor means that he's always busy. Uh 
I'm also uh, working now on the, the the troll documentary is moving forward. I managed to get a hold of um, Danny Shine, who has recently um, finished most of his contributions to the show or to the movie. Um, we're going to be analyzing deeply the issues of the fact that it's difficult to communicate on the internet when people feel that uh, the use of logical fallacy and bullying tactics is a legitimate way to end an argument. Among other things, as I did research and dug a lot deeper, it gets way worse than that because governments have figured this out, corporations have figured this out, that all you need to do to shut someone up is have six or seven people jump all over them on the Internet, and then they'll limp away and leave. So it's not just kids in mom's basement anymore, folks. This issue is real, and it's going to make it really difficult for the Internet, which is probably the greatest tool of communication mankind has ever had, to continue to be useful. This also has to do with propaganda. You know, the the government doesn't have to turn off the Internet. All they have to do is, as has already been even uncovered, even in mainstream media, create, you know, programs that pretend to be human beings and, you know, express a view over and over again to make it appear as the consensus favors whatever that propaganda view is. And it's even more dangerous than state-sponsored propaganda because you don't know who it's coming from. When you turn on CNN, you know they're full of shit. So... <laughs> All that being said, folks, I'm going to leave you with some words from Jack Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jack Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.